Are you plagued by sinful, bad habits, never finding the power or resolve to overcome? You're not alone. Many Christians are servants of sin, feeling hopelessly doomed to repeat failures. But God provides a remedy here in Romans 8, revealed by our Apostle Paul. Greetings, I'm Dr. Paul Felcher. Welcome to my video podcast, where we expose church fallacies and flawed Christian traditions with Bible truth. We let the Bible speak for itself. Romans 8 is the crescendo of the previous seven chapters. Paul summarizes what the law and the flesh could not do, contrasted with the power, majesty, freedom, and glory provided to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The first seven chapters could be viewed as a legal argument for grace, as opposed to the law of Moses. If that be the case, then chapter 8 is the closing argument. Our glorious fullness in Jesus Christ and the totality of God's love for us that believe. Let us get right into the text. Verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Opening with the word therefore indeed harkens back to chapters 1 through 7. Those under the yoke of bondage, the law of sin and death, were under the condemnation of sin for failing to keep the law. But since the requirements of the law and payment for sin were satisfied by Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross, the Jews and the proselytes in Rome are free from the bondage of the law and also freed from the penalty of sin. Whatever condemnation to them was satisfied by Jesus Christ as he is the propitiation or appeasement to the Father for the judgment and punishment we all deserve. Remember, Paul is writing to the Jews and proselytes in Rome that believe in Jesus as the Messiah of Israel and consider themselves under the law of Moses. Paul is not writing to Christians of Gentile origin as we were never under the law. If he were, then much of chapters 1 through 7 have little meaning as we are not or never were under the law of Moses. Only those under the law could fully appreciate the paradigm shift from law to grace. For certain, we all have a sin nature, but not all are under the law. Verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is empowered by the law of Moses. Once sin is defined, all men will quickly know they are sinners. The righteous law of God becomes the law of sin and death within mankind as no one except Jesus Christ could measure up to the law. However, there is a higher law that frees us from bondage, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. By faith we can receive life, eternal life, in Christ Jesus. Verses 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The law could not free a sinner. It could only proclaim one a sinner by failing the righteous standard of the law. We all have the fallen sinful human nature that dwells in our flesh. The law provided nothing to overcome the flesh. It simply communicated the problem. No remedy came until God sent his own Son. Jesus came in the form of sinful man, yet without sin. He came for sin, as he alone provided the remedy for sin. The righteousness of the law was fulfilled by Jesus Christ, 
And since we are in Christ, that righteousness has been fulfilled for us. We are to live, not trying to keep the law of Moses, but living in the Spirit, seeking God's will for our own lives. Verse 5, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Those that live to satisfy the desires of the flesh are consumed with thoughts and activities that cater to their fleshly desires. Whether it be sports, entertainment, gossip on social media, hobbies, exercise, sex, drugs, or some other perverted behavior, those in the flesh concentrate on satisfying the flesh, but those in the spirit concentrate on the things of the Lord, His Word, and whatever ministry He has for us. The emphasis of our lives is to do the work of the Lord, not the desires of the flesh. Verses 6 through 8 For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Those that set their minds on the things of the flesh are carnal. Pursuit of carnality leads to death. But the pursuit of godly activities by a true spiritual person leads to life and peace. Eternal life, and not just peace with God, but inner peace, the peace from God that passes all understanding. The carnal or fleshly mind is the enmity of God as it seeks to satisfy the flesh and not God. They in the flesh cannot please God as they seek not God, but the things of their own fleshly desires, their own satisfaction and glory. Everyone falls into one of these two categories. You are either carnal or spiritual. You cannot be both. Verses 9 and 10. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Those that possess the indwelling Holy Spirit are not in the flesh because the body of flesh is dead because of sin. But we are alive by the Holy Spirit that lives in us. We are declared righteous before God. This is not to say that we're perfect. We all make mistakes. We do things that we know we shouldn't do. But positionally, we are righteous before God. The good or the bad we do in life is a matter of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ not a matter of salvation. Those that do not possess the Holy Spirit are none of His. They do not belong to Jesus Christ and are not saved. Even though they may have knowledge of or give an intellectual assent to Jesus as Savior, there's a big difference between intellectual assent and trusting in Jesus for salvation and forgiveness of your sin. Verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him that raised Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. If we have the Holy Spirit within us, then positionally our old man, our sin nature, our flesh is crucified with Christ. Yet we are alive by the life-giving Holy Spirit to do those things pleasing to God. Verses 12 and 13. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh, for if ye live after the flesh ye shall die. But if ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Since Christ Jesus died for us on the cross as payment for our sin, we are indebted to Him for so great a salvation. 
We owe our flesh nothing, because living under the dominion of the flesh is enmity against God. Our sinful flesh brought us only death, as the wages of sin is death. We are to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, who gives us the power to overcome and mortify the desires of the flesh, and to live a life pleasing to God. Now I know this is much easier to say than to do. There are so many distractions in this world trying to move us away from our walk with the Lord. We must stay focused on the true priorities of life, those things pertaining to Jesus Christ and his purpose for our life. Verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. In the Old Testament, the term sons of God referred to angels, but Paul uses the term to refer to believers in Jesus Christ. Only true believers in Jesus possess the Holy Spirit. Only true believers in Jesus are elevated to the glorious position of being called the sons of God. Verse 15, For we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby ye cry, Abba, Father. Those saved by Paul's gospel of grace, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, are not placed under the law of Moses, the yoke of bondage, or, as it is called here, the spirit of bondage. The law is the spirit of bondage. Why bondage? Simply because no one could ever keep the law or measure up to its standards except Jesus. Under grace, we receive the spirit of adoption. We are adopted into the family of God the body of Christ. We now cry out to God as our Father. We cry to Him not in fear, but in rejoicing, gladness, and thanksgiving. Verse 16 and 17. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. Those that are truly saved have the witness of the Holy Spirit within. We recognize the Holy Spirit within and are fully aware of His presence unless we are involved in ungodly activities wherein the Holy Spirit is grieved. Those proclaiming to be Christians but lack the witness of the Holy Spirit probably should examine themselves to discern if they are truly in the faith. With the Spirit's witness, we know we are the children of God and also heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Most believers in this world suffer for their testimony of Jesus Christ. We in America live in an anomaly, the only country founded on biblical principles wherein we have freedom to worship as we please. Even now, there are forces in America that seek to destroy our religious freedoms. Verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Those around the world, past and present, only suffer for a short time. Years of suffering will pale in comparison to an eternity with Christ in glory. In this life we do not know the extent of God's glory, for eye hath not seen nor ear heard what God has prepared for those that love Him. If you appreciate these video podcasts, please consider subscribing to my YouTube channel or my podcast channel, both named Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth. Also, please visit my website, breadoflife.media, for additional resources, including my free PDF chart of your Bible, Rightly Divided. Verse 19 and 20. 
For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Not only are we, the sons of God, waiting for the manifestation of God's glory, but the creation, the earth, also awaits with an earnest expectation. The earth was unwillingly made subject to the curse of sin with the fall of Adam. Both believers and the earth eagerly await the hope of the Lord's soon return. Verse 21 and 22. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of the corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. The earth itself desires to be delivered from the curse of sin and death, the bondage of corruption. It desires the glory and freedom to be revealed during the millennial reign of Christ Jesus. The entire creation groans and suffers earthquakes, volcanoes, violent storms, devastating fires, and floods, longing for its pain to end. Verse 23. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the firstfruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. Not only is the earth waiting for the return of the Lord, but we believers also. We have the firstfruits of the Holy Spirit. Paul explains that in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also, after ye have believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. The first fruit of the Holy Spirit is the sealing by the Holy Spirit as the earnest of what is to come, our inheritance as sons of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. When you purchase a new home, you give earnest money to show your intention to complete the purchase. The sealing of the Holy Spirit upon believers is the earnest of God's promise of adoption into his heavenly kingdom. The completion of the purchase or the culmination of the earnest sealed by the Holy Spirit is the redemption of the body. Your soul was redeemed when you received Jesus Christ as your Savior. At that time, your spirit was renewed as a new creation in Christ. But you still have the same body. You did not receive a glorified body when you were saved. The new glorified body comes at the time of the redemption of the body, the rapture of the church, as Paul clearly states. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruption must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? 1 Corinthians 15, 51-55 At the rapture, the dead are resurrected and given an incorruptible glorified body that will never again see corruption, the grave. Those living at the time of the rapture are changed from mortal to immortal, given an immortal glorified body. 
Those alive at the rapture having escaped the pain of death will cry out in glorified sarcasm, O death, where is thy sting? Those resurrected from the grave will also cry out in glorified mockery, O grave, where is thy victory? They are now victorious over the grave, just as the others are victorious over death. What a powerful verse. I love it. Verse 24 and 25. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. What Paul is not saying here is that we go through life hoping we're saved. That is not the context. From the previous verse about the redemption of the body, hope, in the proper context, is the joyful and confident expectation of a full and complete redemption, body, soul, and spirit. Prior to the rapture, our redemption is only partially complete. Our bodies have yet to be redeemed. That happens at the rapture previously mentioned. That redemption is our hope. But after the rapture event, we will possess our new glorified bodies, so the redemption of the body will no longer be a matter of hope, but fact. But now we patiently wait for that day. Another verse of hope is Colossians 1.27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is our confident expectation to be in glory with Jesus Christ someday. How could I talk about hope without Titus 2.13? Looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our blessed hope as the body of Christ is the rapture of the church that precedes the seven-year tribulation. The Jews' hope is for their kingdom to be restored to Israel during the millennial reign of Christ, their Messiah. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. During this waiting period on earth, frequently we don't know exactly what to pray for, but the Holy Spirit knows exactly what we should pray for, as the Spirit knows the mind of the Father. Verse 27, And he that searcheth the heart knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. In those times when we know not what to pray for, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in prayer to the Father, making the proper prayers in accordance with the will of the Father. Verse 28, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. It's not that all things are good, for we all have seemingly bad things happen occasionally. But for those that walk in the spirit and will of God, he will make even adverse events work in our favor in the long term. We simply must have faith, trust, and patience that God will prevail, and he will. Verse 29 and 30. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Do not confuse foreknowledge with predestination. 
Foreknowledge simply means that God knows in advance the free will decision a person will make. Predestination implies that God is making the choice and forcing it upon someone. Predestination is not compatible with free will. Those that God foreknew would believe in Jesus, God predestinated them after their salvation to be conformed to the image, the character, the mind of Jesus Christ. Those that God foreknew, he called to salvation. Then he justified them, and finally he'll glorify them. Our glorifying event is the rapture of the church. Verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? We must remember this no matter what happens in this world, or who is president. God is in control, and everything is going according to his plan. Things are not falling apart, but falling together. As I do this video podcast, final preparations are being made for the appearance of the devil's man, the Antichrist. Verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Since the Father was willing to sacrifice his own son, Jesus, to secure our salvation, surely he will provide everything we truly need to serve him and fulfill our calling. Verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. No one, man or angel, can lay any charge against us before God, for we are justified and righteous before God, having the justification by the blood of Christ and the righteousness of Christ imputed to us that believe. Verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who can condemn us since we are in Christ, and Jesus sits at the right hand of God interceding for us? No one. Verse 35 through 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sakes we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Nothing in heaven or earth can separate us from the love of God. Whether we live or die, we are more than conquerors through God, as we are destined to spend eternity with him in heaven. What's the worst thing anyone can do? Kill you? Then he just promotes you to God's kingdom. Verse 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Another list of things incapable of separating us from the love of God, since we are secure in Jesus Christ. Well, that concludes Romans 8. If you've enjoyed this video podcast, then please subscribe to my YouTube channel or my podcast channel, Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth. Thanks for joining me today. See you next time in Romans 9. God bless.